man. Welcome to the next episode of Ready, Set, Go, man. We're here with Justin Gatlin and former athlete, agent, Ronaldo Nehemiah. If you didn't know his face, this is it here. <laughs> Ronaldo, welcome to the welcome to the podcast, hey, man. Glad to be here. Thanks so much, Rod. Yeah, man. I wanna um I wanna touch on a little bit, man, uh how you were an athlete, how you came into the sport as an agent, and then we're gonna touch a little bit on this relationship right here with you and Justin, because this is almost like what's that, 20 years? Yeah. 20 years. 20 years. That's long time. That's long crazy. Time. That's crazy. If nobody knows, man, Ronaldo was a world record holder and won 110 hurdles. First person to break 13 seconds? That's correct. Yeah, man. Tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about the first time you broke 13 seconds, what it was like. Well, the first time I did, I was in high school. And uh, I guess I was international, I'm sorry, the Eastern States meet up in New York. And the interesting thing about the that meet is that in, in the trials and the semis, we weren't allowed to use blocks because they were trying to get the races off on a timely manner. So uh, the first race, I ran 13-1. And then the semifinals, without blocks, I ran 13 flat. Now, wait, because this this we're going to have to explain to our high school hurdlers and, and <laughs> our pros. So I, High you, school you, hurdles you are... Know- Three inches shorter. Right. So let's let's make a clarification. He ran 12.9 over the high school height. No discredit. That's still fast as ever. Because we're talking about back then. What year is this? 77. And 77. So, so well ahead of his time. Let's also take in consideration the hurdles were different then too. <laughs> so they were cast oh. iron <laughs> with ply with the uh, two by four <laughs> as a hurdle bar, right? And you did not want to hit them. Now it's, a, they, now it's aluminum and plastic. Yeah, you they, did not they want to hit those back, back then. <laughs> they so, still, they still, yeah, you had, never, they left marks on you when you hit them. I've never seen a person hurt a hurdle. Plastic, aluminum, wood, and wind. Like, going over. I've never seen it. Never seen it. But, yeah. Yeah, continue. so then they gave us blocks in the finals uh, because it was the finals. And that's when I ran officially 12-9. Uh, so how was the crowd? What was the crowd like when they saw they that one o'clock? Yeah, they went crazy on all three races, you know, because I had no blocks the first time when I ran 13-1, and that was a, a national record at the time because uh, the national record was 13-2. And then I ran 13-0, and, you know, people couldn't believe that. And then when I put the blocks on, I ran 12-9. And so it was it was a, uh, you know, Ripley's Believe It or Not kind of day. Like, it's one thing to, you know, everybody can have like a one-time so-called out-of-body experience and you just run and you drop drop a bomb. But I did three consecutive times. And so that was the first time that I guess I was thrust onto the scene as a uh, as some some guy to, you know, to watch out for. The backstory to that is that as a 10th grader running indoor track, I um I ripped a muscle off my uh, the hamstring that attaches at the top of the assertion from the tail tailbone. Whoa. So I didn't run again to my junior year. So I couldn't run for a whole year. I had found a New York Jets doctor who finally diagnosed it and treated it and was able to get me back. And so my junior year was the first time I really ran in high school and I ran 13-6 because people always want to know about, you know, the chronology, how do you progress? And I said, okay, well, in, in, in ninth grade, I ran 15-3. Then in 
10th, I'm sorry, 10th grade, I ran 15.3. I got hurt. I didn't run again to the spring, summer of my junior year, and I ran 13.6, and I went from 13.6 to 12.9. So it, it doesn't kind of mathematically make sense because there's no real progression to see me coming. It was just wow. big jumps. It was just big just, jumps. Just huge jumps. And well, then, oh, oh, go ahead. No. I don't want to cut you. And, and I was going to say, and even running that fast, Justin's alma mater, Tennessee, didn't offer me a scholarship because they thought it was a high school flash. And I couldn't do it. Real? Yeah. Stan Huntsman. <laughs> not do this. Really? Yeah, that's I, I, a true story. To add, to, add to, to add to that, I just was going to ask you, tell everybody where you went to school, though. I ended up going to the University of Maryland, but the very first school I went to was the University of uh, Tennessee. And I was in, it was my school because they had their own track stadium. They had everything. <laughs> I hadn't seen anything like that. And, it was a, and they had a powerhouse track team. Um Go Vols. And I guess <laughs> I guess they only had one full scholarship available. And they gave my scholarship to a very good athlete, Jason Grimes. Okay. okay. So uh, I'm not hating on Jason. Jason was, you know, a great athlete as well. But Stan Huntsman didn't even offer me the scholarship because he said I would never go there. That was his, his thought. And I said, well, you never offered it to me, so how would you know? And so it was every chance I had to slam Tennessee, that mm -hmm. was my, my chance. So. Some of my greatest days, pen relays included, was against like Tennessee. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> and I, as as Justin would say, I was taking names and I was marking them off, marking them off, marking them off. I can see when I was looking through the crowds, he warming up like, Where the, where's that orange at? <laughs> yeah. 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 The world record, man. The world record. Now, we, we've talked before, me, we've talked a few times. Uh, the world record right now is what, 1280? 1280. 1280. Yes. You set the world record. When you set the world record, at what time was that? Uh, when they finally credited me with the world record. Okay. Yeah, right. There's a few yeah. stories that this is yeah. what I'm getting to. <laughs> 1293 in 1981. Wow. Yeah. First time anyone had ever broken the, credited would break in the 13th second. So you said credited. So that means yeah. you have other stories where when uncredited. What are those stories like? Well, 1979, I won the NCAAs at 1291. And they didn't give me credit for that. They didn't uh, believe it. I ran 1286 at the sports festival uh, in the rain in New York City. They didn't believe that time. Hold on, pause. I want people to know these times in this time right now would dominate. Like dominate. Dominate. Like the dudes would be in trouble. The twelve nineties would dominate. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. And he just he just hollered out twelve eighty six like it ain't nothing. But anyway, go and ahead. In nineteen seventy nine, uh, a week after breaking a world record at the Pepsi meet, I had run thirteen flat for a world record. Went to Jamaica and Cassandra's got a flyer and I had to go catch him. I ran twelve eighty two. <laughs> and they they waited for like two hours to say the time and uh, then they came back and they just said well um, clock malfunction uh, give them 12 12, three, uh, 12 uh, 8 hand time that's what they said and I'm like and no one there had a 12 8 hand time they all had 12 sixes in their hand times so yeah, I just never got credit for it. And then in Zurich in 1981, I ran 12.93 and they finally gave it to me. Wow. So I had I had run it four different times and never got credited. So you running these crazy times that are mind-blowing. And Probably those me promoters back then were probably like, this dude about to break the sport. 
Like, you know what I mean? Like, ain't nobody running nowhere near what he's running, nope. right? A hundred percent. I definitely believe, like, when you look it up and you go through, like, the competition of those times. Uh, you had Marla, to be at least was, two hurdles, two hurdles in front of your, everybody. You was ahead of your time, man. There's yeah. some races I was way out there, but, you know, um, people run for different reasons, right? And so, obviously, the goal and the objective was, back then, if if could man break the 13-second barrier. So that was one part of my motivation. But the other part was just to, to try to put my sport on the map. And, you know, it was always a mile in the 100 meters. And I wanted people to come out and watch the hurdles. So my motivation was that, no, you're going to tune in to watch this hurdle race. Like, you don't want to miss this hurdle race. And, um, and fortunately, I had a guy one year older, Greg Foster, who I couldn't have done it by myself. So we made Epic TV. I mean, it was, of course, most of the time I was winning and I was breaking records, but. <laughs> you see how United States National, most of the time I was just winning. <laughs> but I just wanted people to watch my event too. Of yeah. course, of yeah, course. that was my motivation. So I, you know, what could I do to garner that attention? What could I do to get as much attention as a hundred meter man? What could I do to get as much attention as the mile? You know, everybody thought the mile was so great. So to me, my satisfaction was that everybody, when you talked about the hurdle, uh, the track meet it was about the hurdles you know yeah they wanted to see the hundred but they wanted to see those hurdles and, and i heard you was also uh dabbling in the four by four you uh split a 40 what 44 44 uh 43 two i'm 43. sorry three two two 43 which would be very dominant two. in this time once again <laughs> yeah <laughs> even, relays, right? even a split Pen you relays. take it back to 44 19 two for 200 split um well, I trained. I was a. Um, I trained with the half milers when I was in high school. My coach was a, a middle distance kind of coach, so he felt volume would get you the strength, and then your races were your speed work. So we didn't do speed work in practice because he was always afraid of me getting hurt. So uh, I would just be in great shape and dying chase. You know, I could stay up with the the eight hundred meters guys. I just couldn't recover as fast as they could. So when they were bouncing around the track, say a two hundred or 600 i could walk across cut you know because i needed that kind of time just to catch up to them okay and i'd be almost recovered but so that gave me great foundation so i learned how to run and relax and uh i had an inner ear because you had to run on pace so i knew where i was all the time so by the time i got to run against high school guys i knew what it what it felt like to run you know 21 seconds or whatever um and i could embrace I guess you call it the pain, you know, the hurt because I had done it so much in practice that I could hurt for one race. And so, um, and then, you know, you always want to push yourself. You just around these same events, you know, the, the four by one, the four by fours and he's hurt. He did it all. So you, you never know what you can do until you try it. And I always call it wow, the wow syndrome. It wasn't just wowing them. I wanted to wow myself and see if I could do it. And I, I always said I had nothing to lose and everything to gain. You know, people didn't think I was a 400 meter runner. So let me just let it rip. They didn't think I was a 200 meter runner. I'm like, okay, well, let's see. And so, um, I won't say I surprised myself, but, um, in pen relays, I surprised myself only because I did it all in the same day. I, I think, sure, you have another story. I remember we was on a plane somewhere. You told me about, I mean, some people will find this outrageous, but I, I believe you because I've, I've looked at some of your track record. You said you had a, a couple of 12 sevens ran before. 
those are in practice. Yeah. The, the year that I ran sub 13 for the first time, um, the day that we knew that I could do it without a doubt, uh, it was at Glassboro State. Ross brought two college hurdlers and a high school hurdler. And he put the high school hurdler 15 yards in front of me. And one of the college guys, uh, 10, and another college guy, college guy who was the fastest, five yards in front of me. So it was like that, that event we went to in, uh, in China where they staggered the runners. Yeah, uh, they the staggered runners. the runners. Ah. And, and I immediately looking, I'm like, what are you doing? And he goes, we want you to catch them. I'm like, what? So I wouldn't worry about necessarily a high school guy because I knew he probably was only a 14-something hurdler. But they had a uh, 14 flat guy out there and a maybe a 13-8 kind of guy. So the gun goes off, and I'm, I'm running like a bat out of hell. I catch the high school guy maybe at the third hurdle, but there's no other guys. They're out there. I catch the last guy off of the ninth hurdle and going into the 10th hurdle. And that's where I ran 1250 hand time, which they converged to 1274 electronic. So keep in mind the world record right now is 1280. <laughs> okay. yeah. I just, just yeah. want to put that out there. <laughs> so you spoke on your coach. Um, was he an orthodox coach? Cause I mean, the success you had, you had world record after world record after world record. You feel like y'all were doing something different or it was kind of just, your talent just shined. Wilbur Ross, uh, his genius when it came to me was Wilbur Ross knew how to get under my skin. <laughs> and he knew that I would respond. He knew your triggers. Yeah. Wilbur Ross would talk to me like I was a scrub and talk to me like I would never break the world record. He would say that. And one day I got so mad at him. I go, I'm already the world record holder. <laughs> Why are you talking to me like I'm a scrub? Or he put his little 12-year-old, 13-year-old son, Tony, out there and say, Tony, will you show him how to do this? And the guy could hurdle better than me. I mean, he was smooth and effortless. And I was like, okay. So he would always do those kind of things to mess with me. And, and I grew up, most of us can, but I grew up with people always challenging me. You know, you're not that good. You're not this. You're not. So when Wilbur did it, it was one of these things where in practice or whatever, I wanted to shove it down his throat. But, and the only way to do that is to prove him wrong. Yeah. But that was his genius because he knew that I would respond to that because I was that kind of guy. I'm quiet. I didn't say anything, but he probably could tell I was seething. And I just, like when we were running downhill in the street, whoa, I whoa, thought whoa. he was out of his mind. What do you mean running downhill in the street? It was, it was a drill called critical zones. <laughs> and you put three hurdles up. Sound like a Brooks. And, you take, and you take four hurdles out of the middle and you end on the last three. And the last three are your critical zone. But you said downhill. So we're running downhill on, on, a, a, on a blacktop street where cars are parked, <laughs> where his house <laughs> is. And I'm looking and I'm just going, this man had lost his mind. <laughs> but I don't want him to punk me either, right? So I'm in flats. I'm not in spikes, thank God. But I'm in my running shoes. So I, I take off the first time and I'm getting close to that that tr critical zone and I bail out because there ain't no way I can get over the gravity is pulling you down. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, I don't want to fall in this street and leave all my stuff. You road rat. <laughs> so he's looking at me, challenging me like, what's the problem? What's your, what's your deal? And I said, well, I just had to figure it out first realizing that I don't want to do this. So then I go back up, <laughs> I do it again. 
and I'm running, I, I can make it this time, but I fail because I'm like, that last step is long. And yeah. if I, you buckle or something, you're done. So now he's laughing at me. He goes, yeah, you can't do this. See, I knew you couldn't do it. And now he's pissing me off, right? So as I'm walking back, talking to myself, saying, okay, either I'm going to do this or I'm going to be out on this street. But mm -hmm. I, I got to do this to shut this fool up. So I, you know, so I'm, I'm uh, using my memory and imaging and looking. And I'm like, okay, what do I have to do? I have to attack the third hurdle so that I have enough momentum so I can really get off, you know, on my first stride. And I do it, and, I, and I'm like, you got to stay in there. You got to stay in there. Stay forward. Don't lean back. Don't lean back. And I nail it. But I'm high over there. But I get through it. Yeah. So now I know I can do it. So then the next one, and I ran 12.32 down the hill. Down the hill. And so then once I did the next one, there was no stopping me. Now I know I can do it. So then I was getting aggressive because I already knew the pattern. I knew what I had to do. And then I just look at him and he wouldn't say anything. He would just ignore me. Right. True. He wouldn't even say good job or nothing. He just ignored me. So I was like, this asshole, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost killing myself. Yeah. And, but I did it. And so that was his genius with me. He knew the buttons to push with me because he knew that I would respond just to shut him up, which was a win for him and a win for me. I, I think that's the genius in, in his coaching I don't think it's to get under your skin. He probably was happy that you were doing it, but the point was not to show you, to keep the trophies away from you, to keep you motivated more. And I see a lot of coaches or a lot of parents do that with their kids. I've heard Shaq, Shaq say it before where he would win trophies and his dad would take it and be like, well, shoot, that one ain't big enough. And he would go put him in the garage where you wouldn't see him so he could be even better. And, and he may have been using reverse psychology by saying by challenging me because I could have been of the mindset that I was already the best in the world. May? He was using reverse psychology. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I could have just... breaking the world record. Yeah. And I could have just been going through the motions and really never challenging myself. Self. Exactly. Right? Facts. And he probably as long knew as I was beating everybody... He, he knew you like, would settle. Yeah. And yeah. I could still be better than everybody else, but I wasn't going to be the best that I could be. Mm. So he had to find ways to motivate me. And fortunately, those ways got me to respond. I know a lot of younger athletes will be sitting now watching and they would hear us talk about how you probably were ahead of your time, hear all these wild times. And they probably will Google you and they'll realize there's no Olympics with you. Why is that? Yeah, that's, that was a sore subject for about 20 years. Um, in 1984, um, my, I'm sorry, 1980, my first Olympic trials, I won the Olympic trials. I was favored to win the gold medal, but uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan and Jimmy Carter imposed a boycott. And he let us go all the way through the trials thinking that they might lift the boycott, uh, especially when they let the, the Winter Olympians go the same year that they announced the boycott. And that was the miracle on ice. Oh. The Americans beat the Russians. Yes. So we all thought as summer Olympians, we good, we good, we going, yeah, we going, right? And he kept the boycott for us. Now, I, you, know, you can say, well, mostly people of color going to the Summer Olympics. I don't know, but you know, <laughs> we, I think we, you're correct on that one. <laughs> we, we all felt a kind of, you know, a certain kind of way. But yeah, so that was uh, that was a a uh, it could have been a defining moment for me. Definitely, um, no, I, I definitely yeah, think so. Uh, because I was the odds-on favorite to win the gold medal. I was a household name, a global name, 
and then we boycott it. And then four years later, while training for the 84 Olympics, the Eastern Bloc countries were boycotting the LA games that were here in the United States. So I'm sitting up here going, why am I doing this? It's an amateur sport and they're not even let me run because they boycotting. And uh, so you, you went know, into football. Brings us I to got the it, next yeah, got to the next chapter. Yeah. This right place, right time. I say this man is a freak athlete. This man played in the NFL after all the years. Before we even get into that part. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> what did it I feel now, 2020 hindsight, looking back at it, everyone, everyone gives you credit of being an Olympic gold medalist because they knew how good you were. You were out there, and if you were on that star line at the Olympics, only you could beat yourself. You know what I mean? And um, I think people give you that praise, even though you didn't go to the Olympics, that you are gold medal caliber Olympian for all the accolades that you achieved. Did you feel that? Or did you, was it always a sour spot when people say, Oh, you're an Olympic gold medalist too. Well, I didn't realize that because I dominated so much in the sport when I was running it, that people just assumed that I had won the Olympic gold medal. It's true. So people would mistakenly introduce me as the Olympic gold medal because I, I won everything. So I got to a point where I was mature enough where I could say, no, I didn't win the Olympic gold medal. Actually, I never even walked into an Olympic stadium as an Olympian. I'm an Olympian. I never even got to walk into a stadium. And they're like, what? We just, we knew you won. I said, no, I never got to go to the Olympics. You know, my second Olympics with the Eastern Bloc boycott, I was so frustrated. And then I, there was an event called the Superstars. I remember that. And the Superstars was America's and the world's best athletes get invited to compete in a 10 event, athletic event thing. You pick, you run seven out of 10 events over a three-day period. And whoever scores the most, you win the most money and you're, you're deemed the greatest athlete in the world. And so I got invited and uh, that's where I met Dwight Clark, the famous catch over the Dallas Cowboys mm. <laughs> in 1982. I'm an Eagles fan. I don't want to put that out there. Go yeah. Birds. <laughs> yeah. So it was he and Chris Collinsworth. We were at the bar talking and they were admiring my talent. And telling me, man, you're a great athlete. Why are you wasting your time running track? And the track, you got paid under the table, but then. Yeah. So, and I said, well, Chris, how much money do you make? Because he was a first round draft choice and he made 60000 And I said, well, I make more than you. And they both looked at me like, you get paid in track? I go, yeah, it's a well-known secret. But yeah, I get paid in track. I'm not that stupid. And then <laughs> he said, uh, Dwight said, well, Bill Walsh would love a guy like you. You got, you're an incredible athlete. And I go, yeah, but I didn't play in college. I'd be a free agent and they're not going to pay any free agent. So he says, well, Bill will pay you. So I said, whatever. Um, and the next morning my phone rings and guy on the other end, I said, hello. He goes, Ronaldo. I said, yeah. He goes, this is coach Walsh. And I hang up on him. What? Uh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. I hang up on him. He said, this is coach Bill Walsh. And I'm thinking, okay, I just had a conversation with oh, so know, you thought it was a joke or a Dwight, prank or something like that. And I'm a track guy and it's a football thing. So they messing with me. Yeah. So I said, okay, click. Right. So about 45 minutes later, he calls back and goes, Ronaldo. I said, yes. He goes, I'm serious. This is coach Bill Walsh. I said, well, if you're coach Bill Walsh, call my agent. Click. And I hung up on him again. And then two hours later, my agent calls me 
And he says, Ronaldo. I said, yeah. He says, did you hang up on Bill Walsh? And I said, that was Bill Walsh? He goes, yeah, that was Bill Walsh. So, you know, they got to talk. And the next thing you know, they were flying me out and, you know, trying me out and all that. And then other teams heard about it. And it became a, you know, kind of a bid more and all that. And I signed in 1982. And at that time was the, the largest free agent signing in the history of the NFL. It was the four-year, $1.6 million deal. Ooh. Back then. Yeah. I signed that yeah, deal. I now. wanted to play for the Redskins. <laughs> I wanted to play for Washington. No, I wanted to play for San Francisco in Washington because I was living here in Maryland. And uh, but uh, Jack Kent Cook, the owner, he said he couldn't pay me more than their first round pick, who was Art Monk. Okay. Oh yeah. And Art was only making a hundred grand. I'm like, what? Okay, really? So that's how salaries were that low back then. So Bill Walsh, knowing Bill Walsh was so enamored with me as a track guy because I didn't know he was a fan of mine. So when Bill Walsh signed me, he also knew that by me signing, I was going to lose my amateur status. So he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Told my agent, I know this is going to cost him if he signs because you can't play football and run track. So he gave me a four-year guaranteed contract. That way, if it didn't work out in year one or two or three, I could still have some money coming in while I looked for a job. Wow. So wow. that was admirable. That's and, very, uh, yeah, man. Yeah. Shout out. And in the out. first year we went on strike and I'm still getting paid while the rest of my teammates aren't getting paid and they pissed off. Wow. And then I'm a little cocky track guy and I'm like, don't get mad at me, get mad at your agent. So now, <laughs> I feel so like you said that too. I did say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, you know, so I didn't, uh, my, my entree onto the Niners who had just won the Super Bowl, you know, they thought I was just a cocky dude, you know. So what was it like playing football, man? The difference between track world and playing football. What was your, you feel like was your best moments in playing football and what was your worst moments in playing football? So I couldn't have gone to a better team. I mean, they were, they were the team of the 80s, right? I mean, the Niners and Joe Montana and living a dream, catching a touch, you know, multiple touchdowns from Joe Montana and on Monday Night Football. Um, those are things you, you know, you write about and you, you know, you talk about, but, um, what I didn't like about it is I spent the, my whole career up to that point being in touch with my body. And if something was out of whack, one little thing, you, you know, you, you don't do anything. You mm -hmm. back off and you check it out. And there Bill Walsh told me I had to know the difference between pain and injury. And I said, they're the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of just looked at me and I just like they are the same thing <laughs> and he's so I knew what I was gonna so then I knew I was being challenged there so because I, I pulled a hamstring I'd never pulled a hamstring before because mm -hmm. I was lunging for footballs and lunging for footballs and then within what 10 days he wanted me to suit up and play and I couldn't run and uh and you know we might be running as fast as someone else, but you can't run mm. like you want to run. Yeah, no. you can't open up. You can't you open up, and it's and it's grabbing on you, and it's and so that was a problem for me. So once I started getting dinged up, I didn't have that mindset that you play through pain. I didn't have the Ronnie Lott mindset where my finger's not healing after you know two surgeries, so cut it off, cut off the tip. I don't. I didn't have that mindset. Nah, and so nothing no, yeah, buddy. So that's what. That's the kind of guys I was playing with, but they were, it was an incredible team. Um, 
Bill Walsh was a genius. If I said anything negative about Bill Walsh, it's, it's out of admiration for Bill Walsh because Bill Walsh would play me. When we played teams on turf fields, I played a lot. When we played teams on grass fields, I didn't play as much. And his logic was I was faster on turf than the grass. And I said, if I'm faster than everybody on turf, aren't I faster than everybody on grass? But he just felt that the footing was better. And then his greatest concern was like, I could have a good, like one time I caught six passes for 125 yards and a touchdown. But he was taking me out of the game. It was against the Vikings. And after the game, you know, I'm like, why can't I play more? And he kept saying, I can't hurt. I can't get the world's greatest hurdler maimed playing this game. And I go, but I chose to play it. He goes, well, you're not going to get hurt like that on my watch. And that was after I got knocked out. I got knocked out running across the middle trying to catch a pass. And my career trajectory totally changed. Do you, do you remember who knocked you out? Kenny Johnson. <laughs> I knew he remembered that. Atlanta, <laughs> Atlanta Falcons. And luckily he was smaller than me, but he speared me in my chin. His helmet? Yeah, his helmet. He'd have been thrown out today, but I was knocked out before I hit the ground. But uh, And then on the ride home, Bill came up to me and said he would never let that happen again. And that changed my whole, that was my year two. So now I have, you know, two, three more years. And now I'm not playing as much as I want because this dude is protecting me. Yeah. And I admired him for it in a way, but I resented him for it because I gave up running track and I got banned from running track by playing football. So at least you can do is let me play every day. He probably was shell-shocked, man. I mean, he probably watched your... He was knocked out instantly. So he probably watched your, your limp body fall to the ground. It was probably looking like you was dead. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they he had like five smelling salts under me and I was still out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, but, was, but, I was gone. But I think Bill probably knew, you know, going through the ranks of, of, of kid football players, you you get hit so many times. So he understood that. So he probably looked at Ronaldo like a Ferrari. Can't You can't drive around a Ferrari into the ground. He's not a Camry. Mm. You know what I mean? So... When he brought you out, it was like bringing the Ferrari out for the weekend. Right. So you got to run the Ferrari. Show them off. Show it off a little bit. Put it back in the garage right. during the weekdays. Yeah. That's what and you that's how he do. did it. That's he, he, he knew you had grit, but he knew it wasn't football grit. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, those flashes of greatness, you had to capitalize on it, but he knew it wasn't football grit. And, you know, Daryl Stingley, Stingley got paralyzed and all that. So I think it just weighed on him that if something happened to me on his watch, it would always be connected to him. Man, he probably couldn't live with that. And yeah, he didn't want that. So so after football, you go back into track? So while playing football, the day I got banned, I, I immediately lodged the lawsuit to get reinstated. So I was fighting all the, you know, uh, uh, what is it called? AAU, then the Athletics Congress, then IAAF, all these different branches. And going to court, I'm winning every court, but the World Athletics won't let me run because they said... um. They're going to call it contamination. So if you run against an American or anybody, they're contaminated. So then the U.S. wouldn't even support me because they didn't want to, they didn't call the bluff of Primo Nebbiolo. So I was eligible to run, but I couldn't run against anybody. I never lost. but So I fought four and a half years every year with hopes, and I would train every offseason with hopes of coming back. And then in 1986, I guess it started costing them money to defend themselves, and they it came to my attorney and said, if he drops his lawsuits, we'll let him run. No questions asked. And you could have done that four and a half years ago. Exactly. You know, I had to waste all this money fighting you guys. 
And then they dictated the terms. So the, the president of the IWF is an Italian dude, said that he wants me to run in uh, Via Reggio, his first race, <laughs> back. And then I had this big old press conference. And he got his arms around me telling the whole world that he, he always wanted Ronaldo to be running. And, you know, we're so happy to have him back. And you don't want to block me for four and a half years. And your story sounds so similarly eerie, like eerily similar to like mine in a certain way when I came back to this. So, yeah, it's, remember with, with, uh, with Brussels, coming yeah. back into Brussels. Yeah, and into like, Brussels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, they dictate the terms and tell you how they want you to do it. And they smile and cheese and, you know. Um, so they resented me because I was, I was, I was bigger than Carl Lewis when Carl Lewis was in the sport. I remember when Joe Douglas said to me uh, in 1984, I was doing a broadcast with ABC, and he says, Ronaldo, there's no offense, don't take this wrong, but he goes, we were happy you left the sport. And I said, what? He goes, because now Carl had a chance. Because Carl didn't have the personality and all that. So Primo Nebbiolo was upset because I was a bright spot in the sport, a global name. And I, when I left the sport to play football, he basically personally said I would never, he would never let me run again. So it didn't matter how many times I won in court, he, he wouldn't let me run. Ah, oh, that's crazy. One man Carl dictator. might say that's debatable. For me, you talk to Carl, Carl might be like, nah. <laughs> 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 oh, man, shoot. So after that, that's 86. Do you ever get to run again or compete against other runners? Because the 88 Olympics is right there. Because that's when yeah, I got, I got reinstated. Carl was born. Yeah, I got in reinstated in 80, 86. Uh, ran via Reggio, the first race back. Ruptured my hamstring. I mean, I ruptured my Achilles tendon wow. in the race. Oh, you had Achilles injury? Yeah. I never even knew that. Yeah, crazy. I've had two surgeries, yep. So I ruptured my Achilles tendon that very first race. The sport has changed now. When I was in the sport, it was amateur. Now I come back, folks are making money. So... I'm getting $20,000 appearance fee. And I'm thinking, what? This is a lot of money. And then I get hurt and London's paying the most money. And I, you know, I, they tell me to come to London and they got me all these different doctors and doctor knows that Achilles is shot. You're not going to be able to run. So that season was gone. Um, I came back in late 88, 87. Um, had a decent year. Got the Olympic trials in 88 in New Orleans. Hurt again. Um, run 89. Um, run 90. Make the world championship team for Tokyo in 91. On the plane, I have my newborn with me and, and my first wife. And I don't know if I was sitting wrong or whatever, but got up and my back was thrown out. And saw doctors there and they said, uh, you know, I guess they couldn't manipulate me enough in time to to get it to, to reset itself or whatever. And they didn't want me to risk running because I might get my, might hurt it because I'm a hurdler. So I went all the way to Tokyo and I didn't get to run Tokyo. And then, uh, 1992, 1992 trials. Um, I got hurt. Wasn't a hundred percent, but was hurt leading into 92. And that's when I finally said, I'm starting and stopping too many times. And at that point, you know, I didn't have the, the mentality to, fighting through injuries and I was married and I had a young child. So I started, my life started looking different. Start you know? focusing on yeah. those type of things. Yeah. That's what was more important. And then I wasn't, I wasn't physically the same athlete that I, I used to be. 
especially at yeah. his Achilles. The Achilles well, the 49ers beat me up. That's what led to the, you know, that's what the Eagles played next. Yeah, I had to gain gain 22 pounds. So I went from 169. Yeah. Your body wasn't used to that. Yeah. So so I should have lost all the weight before I started running, but I tried to lose it while running and all that G forces into the ground. And that's how I hurt the Achilles. So yeah, my body had changed. Um, My running style had changed because of the extra weight. And, uh, and then just getting hurt and, you know, you know how it is. You start getting hurt. The, the, you know, the, the mentality you got to have, your mind yeah. starts. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. starts playing tricks. And then you just say, no moss. You know, I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah. You know, plus to me, I, the chapter that mattered was the chapter that I created before I went to the 49ers, which was, I was the world's greatest hurdler. I had done things that no one had ever seen or heard before. And I hadn't even gotten into my prime yet. You know, I did all that by 22. It's crazy. The world never saw me in my prime. Um, so. It was taken away. Be, be, in my prime, I think I would be the world record holder today. No, no I mean, yeah, I mean, if we, if we have yeah. the times, yeah. the times actually say that. And I can't even say it's debatable because like I've done the research and found people that say, oh yeah, man. Yeah. It, it, this, he was the guy. Even when we went to, uh, to Switzerland, and they remember all the walk there. Yeah. It's like, yeah, he was like still a guy they remember from way, 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 way. He is anywhere we travel, then. dog. We would travel places, and it would be a certain group or generation of people, and they their mouth would just drop to the floor when they saw him. They'd be like, "Oh, Ronaldo oh, Nehemiah." <laughs> and either they remember him from his hurdling, or they remember him from the Forty ers or both. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's crazy, and it helps that I have a different name, right? Ronaldo Nehemiah is yeah. not a common name. So you remember it when you hear it, you know? And so that, that has probably helped a lot because my name was different. It wasn't like John Smith. It was, it was distinct and it was a different kind of name. Um, and then I feel like I have the utmost respect for like Alan Johnson, all the medals that he won, the Olympic champion and world champion. And Roger Kingdom is a two-time Olympic gold medalist. And you see some football player jump over somebody, they don't ever mention their name. They'll say that was Ronaldo Nehemiah, you know, and uh, I don't know if it's, well, I just think that my generation and, and how I, I guess my dominance was more pronounced than maybe theirs was because they didn't compete against each other you, as oh, often. You were the standard though. Yeah. You, you had to realize that you did they something. They came after the, me. You did something that the world has never, ever seen before. Literally. Like you, it was almost like landing on the moon. Like, especially in your era back then, like they, people were heavily into track and field and heavily into big. athletics. So, and you were breaking barriers that has never been broken before. You know what I mean? Nowadays, every, every accolade now is so fleeting. People are like, yay, all right, we forgot about that. Let's yeah. go move on to the next thing. But you became a household name. You stayed that way. You became a standard, you know? And even to this day, like you said, people will always think of you first when it comes to hurdles. Yeah. What What do you, you spoke about the world record. I, I spoke about the world record too. I said it's 1280, but you said you would have it today. That means in your head, you feel like the world record is underperformed. What do you think should be the world record? 7374. You hear that, Grant? <laughs> <laughs> yes. 7374. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I was a student. I studied 
strength and weaknesses of everybody I had to run against. Um, and I made adjustments. Um, you know, it, it, it was everything to me. It wasn't, there's a difference in it. You know, when I managed Justin and Justin would change his whole methodology, like, you know, going from being the best starter in the world and running all the nine sevens to, okay, well, I got to give up a little bit of the start so I can have something on the back end. Right. As opposed to, well, if I can still run nine, seven, that way, I'm going to keep run 9-7 that way. Well, but you might be, be able to run 9-7, but you can't run it that way. Um, and so that's what I was doing in my hurdling. I had to learn, you know, who finished strong, who started strong, where I needed to be, uh, what I had to give up. Um, you know, I just had to study what I needed to do, where my strength needed to be when I needed it most. Um, and it wasn't just... Winning races is a byproduct of your strategy working. So if your strategy works, you know you're going to win. So I never worried about winning. I worried about executing. Mm -hmm. And if I executed, then I always felt that nobody could beat me. And so I was restless when it came to performance because I never wanted to get complacent. You know, I just, I always wanted to feel, I always wanted the mindset that I was in a different league than anyone else was. Whether that was true, it didn't matter. It was just my mindset. Mind, yeah. You know, they didn't belong in the same league with me. Being being in the sport and, and watching it, right? And you've been to numerous world championships, Olympics, stuff like that. Going through the last recent maybe two or three years, who do you who do you think out of all the hurdlers right now has the steed to do it? You know, to to go ahead and win the Olympics or even break the world record in the next coming years. You have, you have both Jamaicans, you have parchment and I think Bloomfield. Then you got, I don't know Grant. if anybody running right now, I'll say the word will break the world record. There might be one or two, the young tents, tents, the, uh, the young, Oh yeah. Uh, Tinch, Cordell, Cordell. yeah. Yeah. Tinch. Tinch. He has the ability and maybe it was just his rookie blues where he just came, became overwhelmed of the magnitude as, as Justin knows running during the year is totally different than running in the Olympics, Hundred percent, you know, and a running Olympic semifinal and then running Olympic finals, even different than the semifinal. Yeah. So, uh, it takes a certain mindset. Um, the problem with the athletes today in the hurdles is that they want to run fast. They don't want to run consistent. And if they do want to run consistent, they're not, their training methodology does not reflect that. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to call anybody out. <laughs> you don't want to step on yeah, nobody's yeah. toes, man. I hate you. Yeah, but I, I mean, you. they all have the talent. Like, dude, it's amazing how, what is it, only 10 or 12 people have broken 13. Wow. Since 81. And there are a lot of people that can That's run crazy. it, but they haven't run it. And the one thing I took a lot of, I guess, held my chest out is that when I broke 13 second barrier, I at least proved to everybody that it could be done. And then more people started to believe that they could do it. And over time, people have. But it is still a barrier. It is still. You see, you can see how as great as Grant Holloway is, he still does not consistently run under 13. Right? No. Yeah. No. 
No. And, and that shows you, and he's, he's a very talented athlete. That shows you how difficult that achievement is. Yeah. You got to have it together and, uh, and you got to be aware of where you are. You got to be up on top of you. just can't run. Hurdling is not, I mean, it's your event. A hundred meters is not just a, just all balls out run. It's stages, you know, as you know, it's phases. Hurdling is the same kind of way. You got to know where you are at all times to be efficient. If you're just running, then your time is going to be all over the place. So you have to become a student. And you got to know your history. History inspires you to perform. Because then you can see yourself becoming a part of history or wanting to make history. A lot of these people are just thinking about themselves and they're not understanding the evolution of where it came and how it was done and learning and putting in and being feeling honored to be in that, that number, right? I mean, Rod Milburn was my hero, right? I had a part in my hair just like Rod and Rod ran 13 flat. And I'm thinking, wow. And I, I did everything after Rod and I studied all these different, Martin Lauer and all these different hurdlers and watching all these guys and took parts of their technique and made it mine, which have made the most sense to me. But just studied on, okay, I only have 10 yards. How am I going to get better? How am I going to do this? Where am I going to do this? I want to run fast, but I got to know how to run fast. These athletes can run fast. They don't know how to run fast. And when they do run fast, they don't know how they did it. They don't know how they did it. You ask them what happened. They can't 100%. even tell you what went on. 100%. My race would be over. Wilbur Ross or Gene Poquet, my high school coach, who coached me throughout my career. He'd say, talk to me about your race. I remember the first time he asked me, and I said, what do you mean talk to me? Tell me what happened. And if I couldn't re-visualize what happened and recall what happened, he told me that I'll never improve unless I can stay in the present and remember like it's fresh. He goes, because you're your own teacher, right? I can teach you, but you're your own teacher. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm still in that. That's <laughs> true. I'm still in that. So. True. Let's segue into you becoming an agent and you've represented a lot of successful athletes in track and field, uh, me being one of them. What is it like being an agent? And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's just jump into it. 2004, we met, you know, like how was that for me? I always heard stories about, Oh, if you sign with Ronaldo, he's never going to answer the phone. He's always <laughs> playing golf. And that deterred me to be like, man, I need somebody who's going to be on call. And when I found out and really truly did sign with you, it was furthest from the truth. You always was on point and you always was making sure that you had your, be- your athlete's best interest. Pause. So we will pause there, right? I don't know if you watched one of our first episodes. So this is the Ronaldo Nehemiah who... And Justin's going to tell how he met this man about the Russian story. So you probably will have to go back, watch that one. Then we're going to let Ronaldo tell his side about the, about the half a million dollar race that happened in Russia. <laughs> yeah. So actually, um, I was working as, as in a brokerage firm doing investments. And a part of my portfolio, I would dab or try to talk with different professional athletes to do some portfolio management for them. And then I started getting phone calls from different people about, hey, man, you know, you know our sport. You're an athlete. You know, we don't know these guys who are trying to represent us. You should, you know, you should become an agent. And I was like, what? So I used to do both. I used to do investments and then do management. But I had gotten a call and uh, 
I don't know if it was Nike or Dad. Some I don't know how it came about, but I went to the uh, the uh, NCAA's in LSU. You did, yes. And that's where I first met them. And uh, I think we met for lunch. Yeah. Yeah. And had a good meeting with his parents and got to meet Justin. Justin, sh- you know, showed out in that that championships and uh, uh, didn't get him first 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 go around. <laughs> you know, I thought I had a good meeting and all that, but they they decided to go with uh, Charlie Wells, and that was fun. that was short lived. I think it was just that summer. It was just that summer. It was that summer, and I was what at a the, roller coaster of a summer. Yeah, <laughs> I was at the World Championships in Paris, and out of nowhere, Mrs. Gatling calls me. She asked me where I was, and I told her. And Justin was coming off a hamstring pull mm-hmm. at uh, nationals. At, at I the national. my hamstrings. So he was just, I guess he was brought along to go to Europe, but he was kind of left, left stranded in no man's land. Cause you know, Marion Jones and everybody else was competing and Justin wasn't competing. So I guess he was an afterthought. So <laughs> his, his mother called me up and, and she wanted me to look out for Justin cause he was over there all by himself. And she was furious at, you know, his, his agent who kind of left him and we're because, done. Because I remember calling. I was outside a little tent, the access area where you get your credential and everything. And I'm literally in Paris. Like I flew to Paris, got on the bus with everybody, got to the little accreditation station. And it was like, chip, 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 typing in. It was like, no, we don't have your name in the database. <laughs> so I'm standing outside a credential tent like, and I'm calling. I'm calling back home, calling the agent like, hey, man, you know, what can I do? You know, the time difference. So he's probably asleep. He woke up. He said, all right, figure it out. Click. <laughs> That's not funny. Just like that, Doug. <laughs> Just like that. I'm I'm literally, what, 21 years old? Mm-hmm. If that, 20 years old? And I'm like, bro, I'm lost in Europe. And I think that's where, that's where I got my anxiety of being lost in Europe for so long. Because I really was lost in Europe. I was stranded. Then Ronaldo came in, uh, swooped in, saved the day, man. Yeah. So tell us tell us about that story, how you swooped in and saved the day. <laughs> Well, it was a it was a a concerned mother on the other end of the line, and obviously, you know, I had just recently recruited him, so I I knew who he was, and uh, you know, I assured her that I would you know take care of her son, and uh, and I learned very very well then that you don't you don't cross Mrs. Gatlin, Ga- you know, yeah, gangster, especially when it said when it comes to taking <laughs> when it comes to taking care of Justin, yeah, well, you know, 100%. you got to do what you say. So she was fit to be tied about Mr. Wells. And there wasn't an excuse that could come up that was going to justify him being stranded. So, uh, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I looked out for Justin. And then um, I guess Charlie knew that his days was numbered already uh, yeah. as a result of that. And then, uh, but Justin, um, Justin, I looked after him, but he wasn't with me. He was still with Charlie because you ended up going to Moscow. I did at the end of the season. At the end of the season, I guess you had a race committed already from by Charlie. I did, yeah, yeah. So Half a million dollars. No, yeah. no, no. It was a million dollar race. A million oh, dollar a million race. dollars. Yeah. My bad. It was a million dollar yeah. race. I still have a picture in the newspaper with me holding a big check. Yeah, it was a million dollar race. Now I think the plan was he was going to leave him anyway after that, but he he was going to run that race since it was so much money, and uh, so I wasn't with him. Because Charlie was over there, and then he won the race, which was great. And then next thing I know, something's going on funny with the money, and 
at that point, we made this transition where Justin had terminated Charlie. Mm-hmm. And then they signed with me. And so my first negotiation on behalf of Justin, it was a race I had nothing to do, which was, which was the race that he won the half a million dollars in Russia. And his former agent, now Charlie Wells, calls me up and, and asks, uh, could I help them get paid? And then I'm hearing the story from Justin that he won this race, but they're not getting paid. So I make some calls to IAAF. And they, they sent me a wire copy of a wire transfer of 100000 something like that dollars that Charlie Wells had gotten. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 you know, I'm calling Charlie. I said, hey, man, you, you know, you did get paid. Uh, you know, well, I knew he was going to leave me. And so I just want to get my money. And I said, but you got more than your money's worth. So, but anyway, so we t- took it upon ourselves, Octagon. To uh, now we have to go down, track down this money and find out where this money is. So I'm making calls. Who put on the meet? It's Russian entity, et cetera, et cetera. Fortunately, we have a tennis division, which is full of Russian tennis players as well and people that speak Russian. So we have our office, call their office. It's like a mob, a, a mafia scene, uh, the way they want to negotiate and have me meet them in another country and pass off of an attache full of money. <laughs> like the movies. And I go back and tell my, you know, the, the, the VP of the company and he goes, oh, hell no, you're not going there. Goes, you <laughs> well, won't you be coming back there, if you go came, there. Never right. came back. So I said, well, how are we going to get the money? He said, you don't worry about that. We'll take care of that. So we, we they get into this negotiation and I think, um, yeah, it cost us, I forget, $35,000 or something, whatever it was. And the tennis people bring the money back. And Justin, yeah, he got probably what? 75% of the money, 80% of the money, 80, something like that. 80, 80%, 80% of the money. Of money. Yeah, the man, half that, a million dollars. That's good, man. And, Just, then, and Charlie finds out that we got paid and he calls me up and wanted me to help him get the money for his other clients, which I didn't help him, but, uh, cause you know, he had screwed Justin out of more money than he was supposed to take anyway. Yeah. He never paid you that money. Of course not. Yeah. He still was sending emails with invoices for me to get, give him more money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, man, me and Justin talked about you, man. He he always credits you and and shows love to you. He, I got to tell you this because I don't know if he tells you, but he said you never charged him when you got that money, man. And he said he knew from that point on. He said, yeah, this this is the guy. And no it wasn't my what. money. It wasn't my money. <laughs> That's exactly uh, what he said. That's exactly yeah. what he said. It wasn't my money. I mean, but Justin was like, man, I was willing, man. He went and got it. I would have never got it without him. So I was like, yeah. man, I'm going to give him this. And he said he, he wouldn't dig it. He said he knew from that moment on that that you would be his agent from here on out, like no matter what. So it's 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 um it's difficult being an agent. And I say that because especially well, it's difficult being an agent if you were a former athlete. Because and I'm speaking for me, because you want your clients to do so well because you're part of their fraternity. And you've lived vicariously through them. And when they don't do as well, you, you hurt for them, right? But there's nothing you can do about it, right? And so you, you know, and so for me, it, it was this delicate balance of like being the business manager, but also knowing that my core was an athlete and I was them. And so, it was, you know, and I'd always want to see them do as well as they could 
And if they didn't do well, whether it was injury or whatever, I used to feel like letting them down, right? Because, you know, you always want to put people in position to be successful. I don't train them, but at least want to, you know, get them in positions that if they're doing well, they can keep, you know, um, elevating themselves. And so I'm a straight shooter. So I've always wanted whoever I dealt with to tell me what time it was. Right. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what, you know, no, what really I remember is. when I, when Greg Foster beat me in at UCLA one time, I went out there arrogantly thinking that I could just beat him and show up. And I lost in front of his home crowd and QB Segovin, who was my agent at the time, he walked right up to me and says, take your ass home and train. You can't just show up and beat people. And I had so much respect for him to say that to me as opposed to him being in awe of me and not want to upset me mm-hmm. and think that I'm going to say something different. He, he shot me right between the eyes and, it, and I, I had much respect for it because he was telling me the truth. And so I did have to go home and train because I was just chilling too much. So it's the same kind of thing where Justin and I, over, over the course of the 20 years, we've been all, all over. But Justin would tell people, well, you know, Ronaldo is a different kind of cat, you know, so if you can't handle like straight up, truth, straight up straight stuff, up, I don't know. I've seen it. He's, seen he's not the kind of guy for you. I, I, uh, I, Ronaldo I, I, come up like, hey, look, I'm just telling you that you know, you're trash. <laughs> <laughs> you're running very trashy right now. No, I've seen him be like, oh yeah, that's all they're running. Oh yeah, you you can't get meat. Uh, I can't, no, I can't that's not put you in no sense. meat. That's going to waste more of my time than, you know, you trying to be an athlete. Yeah. You trying to, I think yeah. so. He is, a straight shooter, bad. Well, I because I'm around it all the time with my peers, right? And I see them with all these different athletes, and I know the athletes are doing their best, but they're not at that level, right? And so I'm seeing somebody who can't win a race that's offering $300 for first place. So either you're their sponsor, because if the only first place is $300, mm-hmm. travel money must be trash, mm-hmm. right? 150 bucks and you going to Europe. Yep. So you, so you out a couple thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And if you're showing me some progress where you can, you can win that little backyard race. That's one thing. But if you can't even win that race and it's way down here, maybe you should get a job. Right? <laughs> and so, but I, I've never said that to an athlete. So what, instead of, so to avoid saying that, I would just say, I can't get you into meets that could make you enough money, right? Mm. Or since there's not enough money, then the money that, what little money you make is going to go all towards your travel. And you're going to be upset with me because you're running races and you're not making any money. Making any money. Yeah. And the name of the game is to make money. Right. So right. either you got to get in better shape or... Maybe ultimately some of them just leave and get another agent because I'm not telling them what they want to hear. And then I hear my colleagues complain about it all day long. <laughs> and I'm like, why do you take the athlete on? Be honest with your athlete. True. You, know? you know, when I have people call me up to a 10-2 sprinter, I'm like, that's very good for your 10-2 sprinter, but they're not professional. And they go, what? I said, look at the world list, find a 10-2, there's eight lanes, Tell me where that 10-2 is going to fit on the lane. 
Man, that, that's put that's putting things in perspective. So I take mind. the yeah. So I let them look at the reality, and it's not that they might be a ten o next year or nine nine in two years, but right now, right now, I I I could get in a race before they could. Off a name, just <laughs> right, name. just off my name. So I try to salvage. I you know out of respect for them, I just say, well, you know, I I really can't help you yet, and I'll tell them why. And they'll, they'll tell me, you know, do you know any other agents? And I really don't. But then next thing you know, I'm in Europe and I'll see the per- person that I was talking to. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll see the, the agent that I know. And I'm just like, what did you expect to gain out of that? And then at the end of the year, man, I got to get rid of all these people, man. It's just a bunch of dead weight. And I'm like, <laughs> what did you take them for? Yeah. You know, yeah. so part of, part of the agent business is, is, de- is helping to develop helping to obviously manage, but you got to be honest. Facts. Yeah. Because Facts. not everybody, you know, you hear in the NFL, they, they throw the word world-class out there. Like everybody's world-class. What's world-class? You know, and I'm like DK Metcalf ran against our C club and was yeah. dead last. The C boys, the C guy ran nine, nine, six, that race. They didn't have no nine, eights there, no nine, sevens there, no, none of that stuff there. True. And he was dead last, but they kept calling him world-class. I'm like, or class or RG three who ran what 50 point 49 high in the 400 hurdles at Baylor. I'm like, do you understand what world class is or is it just a general topic that everybody likes to throw around? I just think the audience and especially those kind of announcers never has even they seen, seen that world of what world class really is, you know? So what did it feel like us as a team when we went to 2004 Olympics? win like that. I mean, I know you've represented successful athletes before. I've never asked you this question from a, from a, a mental and emotional standpoint. From you winning from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. Pause, wait. No, no, in 2004. 2004. So. That's, a, that's a Athens. Yes. Athens, yeah. So, yeah. remember, he was the dark horse. Nobody knew no, he nobody, was. Yeah, I wasn't no. even a dark horse. Yeah, Sean no. was a dark horse. No, Sean. <laughs> Sean was and Maurice. That's right. Maurice, was, Maurice was the returning champion. Asafa Fowl was Asafa the favorite. Fowl. Right. And then Sean was a dark horse. Yeah. Go ahead. Tell, let's tell, tell that story. Well, it, it came with a lot of drama. Remember Sean wearing the hat and you guys getting all in trouble running, you know, I don't know if you high five at the. <laughs> we, the crazy thing we didn't even touch. Oh, we were running next to each other in the semis. Right, and he literally looked over at me. He said, "You ready to go to this finals?" And we running full speed. <laughs> <laughs> and I paused for a second. I said, "I looked over and I said, you damn right.'" <laughs> <laughs> and we just in the moment. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, so, it's this first Olympics coming off the injury, two thousand three. Um, I'm very hopeful, obviously. Um, I'm hoping that he could get a medal. I think he's good enough to get a medal. Um, but it's quite honestly, my first time seeing Justin under the bright lights. True. Yeah. Well, I sh- let me correct that. He had just come off a world indoor championship. I did. Yeah. But did you know indoor is different but from indoor is different from outdoor? Yeah, yeah. Very different. So, and I'm watching him run. So if there was anybody, I was more worried about Asafa. I mean, he was he was wrecking shop. Yeah, he was getting all out over the world that year. Yeah, taking names, yeah. and I'm just like, whoa. So, um, but I felt that 
his edge was, even though Sean was good, I just felt that that was going to play well for Justin. And then I always felt in my heart that Justin was a, a, a big time performer when the lights came on. So, but I didn't know he won until he won. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so you're sitting up there on pins and needles, you know, he's in the mix. You just don't know where he is. And then of course you can tell yeah. <laughs> that he won it. And then at that point, that was like, a. am going to be honest with you. I didn't really know how to act. You know, <laughs> I think, I think it was shocking for all of yeah, us. Yeah. yeah. I was kind of like, it was so sobering. Like I said, Okay, this dude won, but it wasn't just that he won. He won the Olympic Games, 100 meters, world's fastest man. And then now, now I'm in a totally different stratosphere, too, because now I'm the agent of the world's, world's fastest, fastest man. man. And then there's all these things that happen surrounding the world's fastest man, you know, with the press and all the, I mean, the sponsors and mm -hmm. all this stuff that all of a sudden you, to me, it became a big responsibility at that point. But your job is, 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 is Possibly from the standpoint where you just said it's a lot easier because now is who do you pick to kind of sponsor him or navigate him to now, right? We have opportunities, obviously. World's Fastest Man garners a lot of attention and everybody, I remember, you know, when we were at Octagon and Octagon wasn't doing much, but I was doing all the work and we're getting all these different opportunities for Justin, Cannon and was it Power Gatorade, Wheaties, and, and all these different things. SB Awards. Yeah. And we're doing all this. And I'm just like, this is a big deal. <laughs> and so it's not easier. It becomes more work because there's more opportunities and there's more things pulling at them. And you got to set up this and set up that and balance it out with his training and not get his coach all pissed off at you because you're going to do all this stuff and mm -hmm. you're making money, but he's still got to stay focused. Um, so it was new territory for both of us. Um, when you have the, the Olympic champion, the roles are reversed. So you don't, you don't necessarily have to go chasing people. They come chasing you because mm. now they want what you so have. So that's the aspect where I say it becomes easier because now you don't have to really. Well, I just, you're just inundated with, with options. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, dang on. Okay. Let me, what, 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 where, when, how? <laughs> this shoot that shoot you know so there's you a lot create, to manage yeah you got to manage know? the schedule yeah yeah and yeah. we threw it all and see what what he likes and what doesn't like and how many days it's going to take for him to be somewhere and yeah but um it was um because it was an um, well it was reese had won prior to that mm -hmm. right so he was the next american to win it it was uh it, it was a momentous time Symbolic towards yeah. pass. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty impressive. And it's it it started the trajectory, you know, because he, he followed it up with oh five double with, gold. Double gold and uh broke the war record in two thousand six. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about yeah, the roller coaster. Broke the royal record, goes up through oh five. What happens when it all comes crashing down? What's, what's that like from your end? We've heard Justin's end. What's that like for you? I remember the day I got the call. And so it was like your heart jumps and you, you, I'm scared to death because I kind of know what it means. I just hope I don't know what it means. Um, and then I'm in panic mode because now I'm trying to gather a team together you know, crisis management team, whatever team that we have to get, that we have to 
investigate and find out what's going on and get as much information as we can. And he's not a nobody. He's an Olympic champion and double world champion. So it's not something that goes quietly, right? Um, and you, you're not, you're not trained in that kind of crisis management situation. So now you gotta, you gotta do the best you can. And for me, it was, you know, protection mode, right? Uh, protect Justin as best I can, even if I don't know how, right? So, uh, and he's in a panic because it's news to him too. And, and, you know, families, everybody's in a panic because, okay, what are we going to do? You know, and how can this even be? This is crazy. This is, you know, you, how can you be at the highest of high and all of a sudden in a phone call or FedEx, yeah. you know, it's like everything is to me, everything is flashing before me. Like what you, you kidding me? Cause even though you, you're, you're hoping for a, you know, a positive resolution, your mind is telling you that this may not, this could be a bad resolution because you're preconditioned to know that if something happens in, in any doping that that's a bad thing. So, um, I never told Justin this, but I mean, for, for the four years that, you know, he faced the ban, I remember my peers to be unnamed would always say to me, why was I still with him? Yeah. That's another reason why he credits you, man, that you, that and, you did stay. Yeah, and I said, well, you know, you get to know families, you build rapports with people. And so it's a relationship and my relationship we're, we're all imperfect people and it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, you know, he who hasn't sent the cast or stone. So I'm sitting up here going, so what am I supposed to do? I've been known this young man since, you know, 2003 and I've gotten to know his family. I've had celebrations with him and all these things with him. And okay, there's a major setback, but he needs my help as best as I can. He needs my guidance as much as I can. And, uh, and it was an integral part of my career at that point. So, um, I didn't think, I didn't think he was going to stay. I, I was, I was waiting. I was waiting. Cause I mean, you know what it was, what it felt like. Yeah. Like the people in the circle that we created bandwagon, people just slowly fell off. You know what I mean? Oh and yeah. Year after year after year, you stayed. You know what I mean? And even like in the middle of it, like serving the four years, like I was expecting you to be like, ain't nothing we can do. Like, get you on the other side. But <laughs> <laughs> I was serious. I mean, nah. I was preparing myself emotionally to, to, yeah. to get that kind of conversation from him. But he would come to court. He would testify if need be on his behalf. You know what I mean? On my behalf. I, and, want, I want to talk to different people who could yeah. help out in the case. Because a lot of people didn't want to talk to lawyers, but they would talk to me. Mm -hmm. So I would go visit people and talk to them. Um, I remember I'm in part of the AAM, the agents union, and they try to grandstand like anybody who had a band that, you know, you couldn't represent them. And they threatened to expel you from the union. Wow. And I was like, okay. So I said, none of you have any control of what could happen to any of your athletes. So you're grandstanding today. But tomorrow that could be you. 
And they all kind of just looked at me. And then every one of them, almost to a man, as the years went on, had one. Had one. So I would say to them all, what you going to do? You kicking them to the curb? What you going to do? And they, so they felt they could understand what I was talking about. It's, it's crazy about this team. Here. Only one that did that to me was Mark Wetmore did that to Tyson Gay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know, even in that situation, like when I came back, like people like Mark would look through me. They wouldn't, like I didn't even exist. Like wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't speak to me, nothing. But as soon as Tyson went through his ordeal, he started looking at me. He started actually talking to me. Yeah, he could understand. He could understand now. And I think he, he, it, he looked at it from a different perspective. Another, something that you guys that happen um, that doesn't happen in a lot of other sports, this, this duel right here. I always tell Justin, and I don't know if he really understands, you guys climb Mount Everest twice. A lot of people do it once and it's good. And, but you guys have done it twice. In the name of athletes who've left the sport and come back, like Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, mm-hmm. Michael Vick. Not a lot of people leave and come back. What was that rise and coming back? Did you think that he would actually get back to the top? Or that was just a journey and you just hopeful that you was happy that he was back? So our lives parallel, our athletic careers parallel one another although different stories. But the symptom of the paralyzation is like, I got banned for four and a half years. He got banned for four. When I came back, I wasn't that guy right away. It took me some time. Like I got all the way up to number two in the world. I got, never got to be number one, but I did get back up. (laughs) When he first started, he was running in, in, in uh, the meets fin- he was talking about fin- in Finland, they were t- <laughs> the they were t- hey, the meets I was talking about was those guys that run 10 22. <laughs> I was one of those guys, one of those guys, you know, in, in Finland, and all these different kind of but yeah. you had to, you had to crawl before you walk. And then for Justin, it was really he had to pay his price to the sport before the sport was ever going to let him really back in, back True. in. Like they weren't going to just put him right back in there. So, and he wasn't ready to be back in there, quite frankly. He, he had a little Pillsbury Doughboy. He had gained yeah, yeah, some. Yeah. I always tell him, tell him, pounds, I said, boy, he two trees to work his way. Yeah, boy. He, he had gained weight. <laughs> but, um, and the Justin, crazy thing is Ronaldo would never tell me straight up like, yo, you fat. He would just be like, been eating, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun that time because they were blackballing him. Uh, I remember, you know, in Doha where Justin had beaten all the people that were in the race already and they were giving them appearance fees, but they weren't going to give Justin an appearance fee. He only had to run for the prize money. And I remember it was at... Uh, that was 2012. Yeah. Fontaine. And I'm sitting there and um, Wilford Mert will pull me aside and, and say, you know, this is not right what they're doing, but he was the ringleader, right? And, or, or Jackie Delapierre, he would say something, but collectively, none of them stood up. So I started picking them apart. And I pulled each one of them apart and talked to them privately. And as I found out through each conversation, it, was, uh, it wasn't all for one, one for all. It was all for me. And so I would get them all to agree because I said, this is not right. You're punishing him twice now. 
He's paid his dues. If he's earning his way, let him earn his way. But don't put another layer of punishment on him. Because that's the case, he shouldn't be running. He shouldn't even be allowed to run. But since he is allowed to run, you guys, this is not right. So when I was talking to them, they would see the error of their ways and then they make a side deal with me. So I wouldn't say, they tell me, don't tell anybody. I'm like, well, who am I going to tell? And we just meet by meet by meet. And then as he started getting better and better and better, the wall started coming down. And I was, you know, Sweden, not Sweden, yeah, Sweden and Stockholm is, you know, a couple of countries, London that weren't going to let him run, but there were what, 12, 14 Diamond League meets. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, if you run eight meets, so what? And you're getting paid these other meets. And then, so he methodically, and then as he got, you know, got himself back to being Justin, I knew it was just a matter of time. He was a four-year rested athlete. So he hadn't been breaking down his body for four years. And then it was just a matter, he just became a student again. And to me, he had this insatiable love for the sport again, for himself to be his very best. And if you got in his way, you just casualty of the event. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm so pleased where he, he ended up. Um, he self-destructed in 2015. <laughs> he don't you hate know, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, he self-destructed in 2015, but that was a, he was fighting the outside noise. He wasn't fighting the competition. And I just think that I wasn't. I remember walking into that stadium, and it was such an eerie feeling because I was always the top dog. You know what I mean? And in the era of Bolt, and nobody was top dog except Bolt. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> so within that season, I ran already five nine sevens, and everybody was like, "I remember sitting in the one bear." Everybody was like, "Oh, you gonna win? Yo, you gonna win? You know what I mean? Good luck, you gonna win." And I think when I stepped to that line, I realized I was like, it was weird being in that same situation as being classed as the winner already before you win. And I think it got to me. That kind of pressure gets to you, you know. And I realized I was like, man, I can't, I can't live like this. Like we gotta, gotta switch it up. Yeah. That, that, yeah, even Bolt knows he got lucky that day. I mean, I mean, he he's, he said he it. Look back he, at me. He said he said I've won, but he said Gatlin beat himself. Yeah, he said he said Gatlin beat himself. He said he said that. So I'll never forget the look on his face when he crossed that finish line. He looked back at me. He was like, "Like what you do, bro? What are you doing?" Like he looked at me like. <laughs> <laughs> like this, and then he struck the pose. <laughs> he like, bro, you know. He had the, he had the. Oh, you don't want yeah, you, you don't want, want it? it. Oh, I got it. You don't want it? I got it. And that moment right there, I was like, it clicked for me. I was like, bro, like you worked all this time, and you ran all these times to lead up to this moment, which everything fell apart. And I was like, I'm never gonna let this do anything like this. Do it, do it again. You, you probably would have gave one of those nine sevens up for the W there. I did in the, in the semis, bro. <laughs> yeah. I ran 977. He yeah. won with 979 or 980, though. Yeah. Yeah. You know it was I mean? 980. Yeah. That's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah. The funny thing is, in the statistics of you running championships, that's the first time in history that you ran slower in the final than you did in any other race ever. It's crazy. Mm. First time you ever done that. I didn't know that. Yeah. First time. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. 20 years, 20 years is a long time. Um, Justin knows this. You know, like I, I was telling Justin that, you know, you know. Well, for me, I when I knew it was time for Justin, if 
probably walk away. Had nothing to be do really necessarily with his outright ability. I just felt he was starting to face age discrimination. And meaning that there's a lot that comes with Justin, his team, uh, what's expected financially, the financial package. And I felt Justin could run fast. I didn't know how often he could run fast, right? Because he was, because father time is undefeated. So you got to pick and choose. So I knew he could run fast. But he wasn't a spring chicken where he can consistently do it like he was when he was running nine sevens. Mm-hmm. So you had to be strategic in that. So because he wasn't running nine eights and all that, he'd run nine nines and all that. And other people could run faster. I knew, well, I already I was hearing, I was getting pushback on the packages that well, I knew already. Yeah. yeah, that we were trying to, you know, physio coming, coach coming, me coming all the single rooms, all the money, you know, versus, and I'm like, okay, Justin, I don't want this to happen to you, you know? So if they're not going to, you know, honor you and pay you that way, I'm not going to have you going back the other way. Cause that's just, he's done too much to the sport to do that. So we were talking about it, you know, and, uh, you know, strategically trying to make the decision when to do it what's the right so that, you know, he could, you know, go from one thing to the other. But, uh, what was 17 like? That's 15. <laughs> and Seven. 17, 17 wasn't a pretty year. <laughs> it ended pretty, but it wasn't pretty. Seven, seven well, I thought 17 was going to be a good year. And then, and I also knew that, Contractually, it was his negotiate. It was his, the last year of his contract, and so I wanted to start early to talk about his contract. And then at that point, I was getting aggressive blowback from Nike, not doubting his ability, but I think really Age not wanting to pay so much. Age discrimination. Age discrimination. Got this guy. This guy's winning. He's beating everybody. We got to figure out a way how to be able to stun him. Yeah. Age discrimination. Yeah. We know based on what he's running, if he's a younger guy, we, we'd have to pay him. But he's not a younger guy. And so the first statement I got was, how much longer is he going to run? I'm just like, what? Get this guy out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get into this, you know, well, we're not going to pay. And I said, I didn't even talk about pay yet. I just wanted to have a conversation. So then um, I threw it out there arrogantly. But I was confident, at least confident enough to say it to them. And I said, so what happens if he were to beat Bolt? Because I just said, let me go for the juggler, like hypothetical. What happens if he beats Bolt? Just to see their response. And I was like, well, shit, if he beats Bolt, it's a different story. And I said, okay, well, let's just wait and watch the race. So this conversation was happening while you was already in London. Yes, I was at the hospitality. So this is what happened in real time. Real time. (laughs) Real time. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you didn't know that. No, I, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking it was like a month or prior or no. two or beginning no, of the they, year. No, they were avoiding me. Okay. So when so, I saw him at the hospitality, I, I cornered him. I said, can we at least start talking about a framework and all that? And that's when they got all aggressive. So after I said, well, what happens if he wins? And it was like in front of everybody, well, that's a different story if he wins. And I said, okay, well, why don't we just wait and see what happens afterwards? And then 
So I go to get my lunch, and then Tiny Tim comes over to me and says, Jay got really in good shape. <laughs> I started laughing. <laughs> I, said, I said, he's ready to do something, Tim. Because Tim bet it on you. I know he did. He took that from me. I know he did. Yeah. He came right over to me. I laughed, too. I was like, he says, is he really ready? Do you think he can win? I said, he's ready to rock. And he didn't tell me he was going to bet, but Tim went and bet on it. Like him. physically betting. Physically like bet I'm, dollars. I'm putting money in on this. Yeah. <laughs> on his conversation with me. But meanwhile, his, his counterparts don't even want to talk to negotiation. So as you know, uh, they're booing Justin left and right. And I'm just like, dang. Am I, it's my wife's first time at a world championship. <laughs> and my wife is getting into it with people, you know, arguing <laughs> with people. I'm just looking at Lynn like, what are you doing? <laughs> but you have to admit, you've never seen that before in a championship. No, I've all. never like, seen this it. Is... Every time they mention his name, it's the same London people in 2012 when he got the bronze. We're cheering. It was cheering for him. And I'm like, oh, all of a sudden now he's a threat to Bolt. And all of a sudden he's their enemy. So I'm sitting up there going, damn. But I felt if, if it, the Justin I know would use that as fuel. You know, it wouldn't let wither him and like, oh my God, they hate me here. Because he already had been through all that. You know, he'd been through different places where, you know, where I've had to told him, tell him that they don't want to pay you this or they don't want to do this for you. We already knew that. So it's arrogant Brits. So what else is new? Um, and then he wins the thing and shocks the world. Literally. Yes. Shocks the world. I mean, and I mean, every Brit sitting there probably was in dis disbelief. That's, well, everybody was. That's, that's the famous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> everybody was. I remember when the crowd, because it was the last race of that of that day, and the crowd was filing out, leaving the stadium. The crowd was so quiet. Just quiet, just walking out. Because that's not what they thought was going to happen. Yeah. That was going to be a fairytale ending for you saying. Yeah, it was his, his swan song. Yeah. His, his last race. And he got, he, he got blitzed. And uh, so I'm on a high, right? Because I'm thinking, my first thing is historically, he slayed the giant. And out of all these dudes who raced, they can't say they slayed the giant. Even Christian may have gotten second, but he didn't slay the giant. You did. because You got the gold. So nobody else did. And historically, Justin's the only one that gave this dude fits. Even if he beat Justin, Justin gave him fits. He could not just show up and run against Justin. Well, he said he had to be ready. Yeah. He <laughs> showed up and run against a lot of these other dudes. I watched him when Justin wasn't running in those races. He knew he could win. Yeah. He didn't have his age. <laughs> I remember when Justin beat him in Rome that year. I remember That's that. 13. And they didn't want him. <laughs> got in a technical meeting, and he wanted to slain wherever here. And they wanted Justin here. And I said, you can only control what lane, one lane. What lane do you want? I didn't even know that. Oh, it, was, know that. it was ugly. It was a nasty meeting. And so that's looking, why Mike Rogers ended up in lane five between us. Correct. Ah, correct. okay. Okay. Because yeah, he wanted to be so far apart. And I go, no, this game's a hundreds, man. My guy got to be right next to your guy. And Ricky's going off because he's Usain Bolt's agent. And I said, Ricky, in front of everybody, what lane does Usain Bolt want? And he couldn't couldn't get out of it, and he picked his lane. He couldn't pick lanes, like because in the back room he picked lanes, and mm -hmm. you know you be in lane six somewhere, and saying being lane three, you know he wanted Justin as far away as possible. So when I forced him to say it in front of the whole group, he was burned. So he had to pick his his lane. Oh. Now he did maneuver one lane. That's how uh, Mike, uh, Rogers Mike Rogers got. got yeah, because yeah. he. He did not want you right next to him. 
That was his biggest thing. And I kept saying, but you can't dictate the lanes. Yeah. And it was a bigger. And then Justin beats him. And Ricky's pissed off at me. And I'm just like, <laughs> do you want to speak to me or nothing? And I'm like, dude, you got the man. He got beat today. It had nothing to do with the lane. He got beat today. Yeah. So, but after 17, then, you know, I'm feeling high that, okay, Justin climbed Mount Everest. He beat the guy. It's a historic win. It puts Nike right back up on top again. And we're going to have a nice fall negotiation for his, his extended contract. And I'm figuring it's going to be probably two years in the option. Rickets. You're nothing. No callback. Nothing. You know, just kind of, oh, yeah, well, you know, we're going to talk about it. You know, we're having some internal meetings. Nothing. Lou they didn't think that was going to happen. Yeah. So they put Tiny Tim, what, six months, seven months, eight months? I don't know how many months later. Almost a year later? Almost, yeah. Yeah. Almost a year without a contract. And he gives me this offer, basically, take it or leave it. And it was the most insulting offer I had ever heard for a guy that just beat Usain Bolt and won a world championship. It's crazy. Yeah. So, so it's a high of the highs and the low of the lows. Uh, forget about the offer. It was just from the time I talked to them before he ran to the time they started talking to me. I just think they, they just took him for granted. And like, like they had the gold medal. So now we got our goal. So, you know, we don't need it anymore. Some young guys are coming up. And so take this, you know. I think it's also the fact that we constantly came in and was breaking the system. You know what I mean? Like, as you get older, you know, people always seg segue out about 30, you know what I mean? Around that age, 31. And you were still around. You were way beyond that. And still winning. And still winning. Where that money and that portion of that money were already gone back into a new college kid or some bonuses for some athletes that they already had. I was taking a large chunk of money and they couldn't really disperse it out correctly because I would go away. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go away. So they figured like, oh man, we got, let's, just, let's get them out of here. Let's get them out of here. Man, we have so many more stories we could tell. We got to have you back, man. Yeah, Ronaldo. this is good. We, 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 we definitely have like maybe more three or four more episodes. There's <laughs> so many sure. stories we could tell. But for, for right now, man, our time is up, man. We want to thank you for your time here at RSG. But before you go, give us your mountain Rushmore of all the guys. Your top four hurdlers of all time. Wow. The top. Four hurdlers. Okay. Um, it's usually five, but you put him in that so he don't have to say his name. Yeah. Your own name. Okay. <laughs> That's what. Uh, you, you're smart. You're smart. That's no, right. no particular order. Nobody. Uh, nobody. Alan Johnson. Um, Colin Jackson. Roger Kingdom. In the fourth, Lu Shang. I knew he was going to say Lu Shang. I knew he was going to say Lu Shang. I said Lu Shang was from the. He had to be in there. Man. I, I, I wanted to hold that to the end. Lu Shang was, was, was a bad man. He come across that line looking at his opponent and getting that gold medal like this. <laughs> he was a bad boy. Bad boy. A, a technical yeah, phenom. Thank, thank you for that, yeah. man. If anything from this episode, man. Athletes, do your studying, man. 
Listen to this man. This man's first man to sub 13 seconds in the hurdles. Uh, thank you for coming to the show. And we before, appreciate uh, you so much. Thank you. Before we leave, Chief, um, I want to thank you, man. Oh. Thank you for always being in my corner through the ups and downs. Um, you know, I've always thanked you each year. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate you, the human that you are. You know, I, I don't think I would be the athlete that I am today, that I was, should I say, without you being the human that you were, you know, and you guided that. me along the way and you always know that family to me, man. So I appreciate you always. It was a great partnership. It definitely, partnership. Was. Yeah. It definitely was. It was more fun than not. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. 